All right. Um, I think there's anything else to cover. Just want to express my gratitude to everyone. You guys are a part of the body. Really, the whole body is doing it. But with this transition, I know it's a lot of changes. Um, but just thankful to see the way people are uh, so gracious with those transitions in the services um, and trying to accommodate that. I know even this morning, like coming over here, we got out a little bit early and then family life still finishing things up and we're waiting in the halls. But you know, thank you all for your patience. I never heard any grumbling and people just seem to be happy to roll with it. So thank you for doing that. All right. Oh, so a bridal shower. All right, so let's go ahead and jump in. Let's start by reading from First Thess here. Uh, we've been in chapter 1, verses 2 through 7. That's kind of the text we're in the midst of. And so we'll just read that before we continue on, get the text back before us. First Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul writes, this is verse 2. We give thanks to God always concerning all of you as we mention you in our prayers because we are incessantly remembering your work of faith and your labor motivated by love and your perseverance motivated by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ before our God and Father. And we also thank God for you because we know, brothers beloved by God, your election or God's choice of you. And we know you are elect because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what sort of people we were among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord by means of receiving the word, that is the gospel message, in much affliction with joy provided by the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all who are believing in Macedonia and Achaia. So in this text, Paul shares with the Thessalonians the thanks he gives to God for them. We talked last week about sort of the dynamic there, right? He's, he's not really thanking them. He's thanking God, which he didn't have to do like in writing before them. He, he probably did that already on his own. But here he's doing it sort of in writing. He's reporting to them the thanks he gives to God for them. And it seems he probably has several reasons for sharing this Thanksgiving with the Thessalonians. One is likely just to encourage them, right? To share with them kind of a reflection on the work that God has been doing in their lives. We often need that, right? We need brothers and sisters to point out for us God's work of grace in our lives because sometimes those changes happen slowly. We don't always notice them or we notice them and move on. And other people who have a bit more of a long-term view of our lives they can a little bit more easily see the change, right? And it's helpful for them to point out that's what's happening. Or even it could be in a moment, right? So in that moment, you notice that person was provoked to anger and they responded graciously. And they may just walk away like, I don't know what happened there with that situation, thinking about that. But you're able to draw their attention to the fact that, hey, that was God's grace at work in your life. That, the flesh doesn't operate that way. The flesh lashes out, but God's grace was at work in your life that you responded that way. So at least one of the reasons Paul has here is probably just to encourage them, point, point out the evidences of God's grace in their life. Another is likely directing their attention to important things. You might think of it in the category of like positive reinforcement. I hate to use that category because it seems so trite, but he's basically saying, here are the things that I'm seeing in your life that's evidence of God's grace, and these are important things. And so in other words, keep up, keep doing those things. And in this way, we said last week, I'm kind of reviewing from last week here, that Paul's thanksgiving provides a pattern for us, right? And on the one hand, it provides a pattern for our thanksgiving in the sense that this, these are the kinds of things that we should be giving thanks for. But we said that in many ways, our thanks, like what we give thanks for, is directly linked to our priorities, right? The things we ask God for is directly linked to our priorities. The things we thank God for is linked to our priorities. So sort of at an even lower level, it's a pattern for our priorities, not just for our thanksgiving. And so we're going to frame up all seven verses here, or really six verses, two through seven, um, as three lessons from Paul's thanksgiving to shape our priorities. And we launched into lesson one last week. It was the priority of thanksgiving. And then we kind of camped out here. We're going to camp out here for a couple more weeks. Um, and this is just still by way of review. Last week, we looked at 
several ways we can see the prominent place of thanksgiving for Paul. One was the prominent place of thanksgiving in Paul's letters. And we notice specifically the frequency with which he thanks God for something in the recipient's lives at the beginning of his letters, or sometimes throughout his letters, at various points in his letters. And then a second way we could see the prominent place of thanksgiving in his letters is in uh, the amount of space he gives in his letters. I said there's different ways you can kind of calculate that, but by some estimates, almost all the first three chapters of 1 Thessalonians are given to thanksgiving. Um, certainly he kind of wanders in the midst of that, but he keeps coming back to Thanksgiving until the end of chapter 3 when he really wraps that section up and moves on to really the body of his letter. So the amount of space gives us an indication of the, the importance of Thanksgiving to him. And then another one is the prominent place of Thanksgiving in his life. And we could go to a number of places for this, but just in those, uh, the second and third verse of this letter, verse 2, we see there the always in we thank God always for all of you. So this thanksgiving was a you could say, habituated pattern in his life. And then in verse 3, the incessantly in, we are incessantly remembering your, and then he goes through that list, right? Your work of faith, your labor of love, your endurance of hope. So that incessantly just shows us this is something that was frequent in his life. Now, over the next few weeks, we'll be moving into just an additional angle on the prominent place of thanksgiving for Paul. Uh, we've seen the, the prominent place of thanksgiving in his letters, the prominent place of thanksgiving in his life, and now the prominent place of thanksgiving in his theology. And this will be the third, the third and final thing we cover here under the prominent place of thanksgiving for Paul. Um, and then we'll do this at least this week and next week. Um, haven't decided if we'll have to do another week beyond that. And then we'll spend some time just kind of thinking through implications. You know, how do, how do we work this out? In other words, when we aren't thankful, we're believing lies. Because the reality is one that should lead us to thankfulness, right? And so we've got to identify what are those lies and what are the truths that we need to believe in place of those lies. And when we're believing those truths, we will be naturally led to be giving thanks. So we'll spend some time on that after we finish up the prominent place of Thanksgiving impulse theology. But for today, we're going to spend some time thinking about that, the place of Thanksgiving in Paul's theology. And just to be clear, at this point, we've kind of deviated from exposition. This is like a topical study, <laughs> a little excursus we might think of it as. All right, so the prominent place of Thanksgiving in Paul's theology. Let me say quickly, too, before we jump into this quotation here, um, we're thinking in this whole study almost exclusively about thanksgiving directed to God. Thanksgiving can also be directed to others, right? But we're thinking almost exclusively here about thanksgiving directed to God. And on the one hand, this may just be an arbitrary choice to limit the scope of the study. Um, on, from another angle, though, it's sort of not just arbitrary for Paul because there's only one instance in Paul's letters and even it's a little difficult to understand where he might be thanking someone besides God. Now, don't quickly jump to conclusions there that we ought not to thank anyone. There's obviously an appropriate etiquette function for, uh, for offering thanks. But that should beg the question at a deeper level, why? Why does Paul always go back to, to God? Even when he's talking to someone who's been God's means of some kind of generosity to him, he'll usually say something like, I thank God for your generosity to me. <laughs> so he's essentially thanking them, right? But he's doing it in such a way that he actually looks beyond that to what God had been doing through them. I think there's something probably to be learned from the way that Paul does that. So when we're talking about this, we're primarily talking about thanksgiving as directed to God. Now for the quotation on the screen by J.B. Lightfoot. How lofty a view, he says, Paul took of the duty of thanksgiving. So what did Paul understand about thanksgiving that led to this? How was it that Paul thought about thanksgiving? We could even say, what was Paul's theology of thanksgiving? And there's a couple of ways we can answer this question. Any ideas? There will be some ways you can kind of probe into Paul's theology of thanksgiving. I know an umbrella term is that the basis of our thanksgiving is that for those of us elected by God, we are saved from an eternity in hell. Mm-hmm. So that is the, the impetus. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, so there's like a truth, a part of Paul's theology that leads to thanksgiving. Yes. Totally, yeah. 
good. Yeah, obviously his letters, right? Paul's letters can give us some indication as to how he thought about Thanksgiving. The interesting dynamic there, though, is that Paul often sort of, a lot of this is assumed. We've got 13 letters from Paul. Imagine someone sitting down and trying to derive how you think about any one topic based upon 13 letters you've written, or in our, today's world, 13 emails you've written, right? Like, it's, it's, a, it's a limited amount of evidence, and there's a lot of assumptions behind it. And so uh, the second place we can look, and I think I might have a slide for this. Yeah, the second place we can look, though, is the Old Testament perspective about Thanksgiving. Almost at any place where Paul doesn't, seek to show some sort of change or discontinuity, we can assume that he's thinking just the way that the Old Testament lays something out or the way that his fellow Jews around him thought about things. Wherever there were changes there, he, like, like his master Jesus, often was pretty intentional to, to confront those things and to correct those things. But where there isn't, often there was a, a similar, similar way of thinking. So a second route or means or method is to consider what the Old Testament teaches about thanksgiving. So as we embark on this pursuit to understand the place of Thanksgiving for Paul and in his theology, um, the way he thought about Thanksgiving, we'll look at those two places, starting this week at his letters, and then next week looking at the Old Testament perspective on Thanksgiving. Now as we jump into um, this, looking into his letters, two texts can serve kind of as an entrance into Paul's thinking about Thanksgiving. So we'll look here first at two texts that serve sort of as an entrance into Paul's thinking. The first, 2 Corinthians 4.15. So we're going to spend a little bit of time here. I know I had you turn to 1 Thess 1, and then we just read it, and now we're moving on. But I'd encourage you, go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians 4.15. So actually, both the texts we'll look at as an entrance into Paul's thinking here will come from 2 Corinthians. This first one from chapter 4 and the second one from chapter 9. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15. Paul writes, For all things, and here when Paul says for all things, he probably has in view things like his own labors, his own sufferings. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. So that's the verse. I just want to unpack kind of what, what's implicit here about Paul's view of thanksgiving. Notice the progression. He says grace is spreading as evidence, presumably, in conversions and transformed lives. So he's seeing the grace of God spreading as more and more people are coming to Christ and being transformed in him. And he says this is leading to thanksgiving being rendered to God by means of which the thanksgiving God is glorified. So it's interesting to see that between conversions and transformed lives and God's glory, there's like a middle term. And that's thanksgiving being rendered. Now, I'm not trying to say hard and fast that Paul says that apart from thanksgiving, that someone's conversion doesn't directly glorify God. But I'm just noting the, the role that Paul gives to the thanksgiving, right? That as people are being transformed, other people observe this, they give thanks to God. And that's what Paul identifies as giving glory to God. So my, uh, in terms of how God is glorified, thanksgiving is clearly at the top. Um, we see here that for Paul, thanksgiving is virtually synonymous with worship as well, right? People are basically worshiping or praising God because of uh, what they're seeing his grace doing. And this is no small matter. We might say that the restoration of appropriate worship of God by his creation is the ultimate goal of his creation plan or his redemptive plan even. So what I'm trying to do here is just tease out that this is not just like some link in the chain in Paul's theology that I'm trying to squeeze a whole lot out of. This whole idea of basically as God's doing his redemptive work, people observing this and people turning to the Lord in praise and worship is really at the center of redemption. It's, it's not a small matter. Um, we sometimes get so man-centered in our thinking about redemption that it basically goes as far as people escape hell and go to heaven. Well, where's the glory of God in that, right? Well, the glory of God is tied up in that, but that's like even greater object or purpose. Not that that's not important, but there's something even more ultimate for God in his redemptive plan. 
And that is that his whole creation, which was created for his good, for his glory, has turned away from him, is no longer fulfilling their, their obligation, their duty, their joyful opportunity to spend their life in service and worship and praise to him. And redemption is all about turning them back to him so that they would worship and praise him. We could say it this way. At creation, God was at the center of everything. Not spatially, but in terms of priority, in terms of orientation, in terms of focus or purpose. God was at the center of everything. And humanity, along with the rest of creation, was created to live in relation to God at the center and to find their good in him at the center. The essence of the fall was humanity's discontentment with not being at the center themselves and insisting we want to be at the center and attempting to put themselves at the center in displacement of God. But in so doing, we hurt ourselves tremendously. Whereas previously, we were blessed, able to live in relation to that center, near to that center, and be blessed because of that proximity in relation to God. That's, that's where all of our good comes from. And yet, by trying to make ourselves the center, we lost it all. Because that's a, that's a position we cannot occupy. We weren't created to occupy that. We simply can't occupy that. And not only were we kept from coming near to that center from which comes all of our good, we didn't even want to. And after all, God never really even left being at the center, did he? It's in some sense like we, we lost sight of him at the center. We chose by being removed from him to now no longer really even know where the center is. In terms of humanity's perception, once we stopped living in relation to God, we have continually lived to place ourselves at the center, a role that we can never fulfill. And the result is an awareness of futility, an emptiness, a purposelessness. You know, there's some sense, it's a little caveat here, but as you interact with people, say your neighbors, um, co-workers, it, it is pervasive that people reach certain points in life. Some points in life, man, it seems like everything is going, especially when people are younger, right? Things are good. There's a lot in store from them in the future. And even if they're apart from Christ, they're still kind of a lot they're running on. They don't really feel the need of that. But people often reach a point in life where it's like, what, what's going on? What am I living for, right? What, what is the end of all of this? And the temptation sometimes can, can be to let worldliness creep in really in the sense of trying to find some kind of technique some sort of therapeutic solution for that. But from our worldview, what is the most basic reason we ought to expect people to sense purposelessness? Because we're living apart from the purpose God gave them as, as their creator, right? And so the most basic thing needed is reconciliation to him and restoration to that. Now, that's not to say, I just want to, it's like a little parenthesis here because this is a complicated topic it's not to say there are never physiological factors like thyroid or things like that that lead to people feeling like there's hopelessness um but it's to say that whenever we're interacting with unbelievers like that's the most foundational thing right there's not anything else that can really smooth over that and make everything better without addressing that foundational concern so redemption redemption is about pardoning us from our mutiny continuing with this whole idea about creation, us falling away from that by wanting to make ourselves the center. Redemption is about pardoning us from our mutiny and returning us to our proper place and our proper role, which is keeping God at the center, but living in relation to him, near to him and in relation to him, worshiping him in all we do. But if we simply partake of the benefits of being pardoned, but we aren't reoriented to God, living our whole lives in worship to him, then really the purpose for which redemption's been, been pursued has been lost, right? God's purpose is to return us to him that we would live as we were created to. So this whole idea that we could be pardoned from our sin, forgiven, and yet not actually be reoriented back to serving and worshiping him is just, it's silly. It would be kind of missing the whole purpose of redemption. And I would even go a little further to say that the New Testament seems to indicate that whenever God pardons someone of their sin, forgives them, he also restores them to their rightful role. The New Testament does not know of the possibility of someone who merely receives forgiveness but continues to live to serve and worship themselves. Therefore, I think we could say that such a profession would be spurious. There's, there's no legitimacy to it. 
So it should be clear from this little look at kind of creation and God's perspective on what he's been doing at creation and what he's been doing in redemption, that thanksgiving, which is largely understood by Paul here to be worship, plays a critical role. Plays a critical role in bringing glory to God. It's not just some way of... um, some way of kind of an offhanded way, occasionally thinking about God and offering him some thanks. But like, that's what we were created for. It's, it's the praise that's due to him. Thanksgiving is here for Paul, practically equivalent to worship and exceedingly important, even central for those who have been redeemed. And this importance is, I think, something we readily understand when we link Thanksgiving with worship. So that's an important connection to note. For Paul, thanksgiving is basically equivalent to worship. Now, notice also the expectation in this verse that not simply that thanksgiving will will just be present, but it will abound, right? He says there that the goal is that as people are seeing the grace spreading, thanksgiving would abound. So that's one text where we get kind of a glimpse into Paul's thinking about thanksgiving. Another one, just a few chapters later in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. So go ahead and turn there, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And we'll be in verses 11 and 12. This is just another text that evidences how Paul thinks about thanksgiving. Paul writes verse, I'm going to start in verse 10 in reading this just to get some context. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Verse 12, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. So first in verse 10, Paul reminds the Corinthians of a truth from Isaiah, namely that God's the one who provides us with whatever we have. And then we receive that so we can share it with others, not just materially, but even in other ways as well. You notice that he begins by saying, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So he's clearly got more than view than just material sharing, right? He provides the provisions with which we can even produce righteousness. So he gives to us as stewards, right? He says he provides for us plentifully so that we can share generously, right? That's a helpful category. I know you probably, most of you probably heard that before, but he gives to us as stewards, not just as consumers. So we can pass on to other people. And if we are to thank not just the people who provide us with good things, but also, and more importantly, God, then we must remember that God is the one who provided those people with whatever they would give us. You see that connection? By Paul tracing things back all the way back to God who gave to whoever might give to us, then when we give thanks, the thanks is due not only to them, but really in some ways all the way back to God. It would be like thanking only the messenger who brings a gift and not the one who actually sent the gift right? That's how Paul's viewing it. And then in verse 11, Paul explains that God gives generously in every way so that his servants, or we could say in this context, his stewards would be generous. And this generosity of God's servants leads to thanksgiving being given to God, he says in verse 11. Notice that's where it ends. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which that generosity through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So what's going on here? Just some background. What's Paul talking about here? Paul, during his third missionary journey, so I know we're jumping ahead of where we've been in 1 Thessalonians. This is during his third missionary journey. Um, He's been collecting an offering for the poor believers in Jerusalem. Uh, We aren't sure exactly all the reasons why they were destitute, but a lot of the believers in Jerusalem were destitute. And keep in mind also, we learned some of this during that first, uh, first time we started looking at First Thessalonians, and we, we learned a bit about the, um, the Jerusalem Council and the book of Galatians, and just that tension there that as the gospel was spreading, first it's going to Jews, and then it's going to Gentiles, 
But there's a lot of uncertainty about the role of Gentiles in this new covenant. Do they have to obey the Mosaic law? Do they not? And so Paul's particularly eager to bring a gift from these Gentiles who are recipients of God's grace through Israel back to Israel, back to Jerusalem, kind of the epicenter of believing Israel, um, to basically say, like, listen, the Gentiles are, are one with you, right? They're willing to share with you and not just be recipients, but to be giving back kind of to where, where it all came from. So that's what Paul's been doing, and he's writing this letter in anticipation of arriving in collecting from them to take their collection back along with the collection from other people back to uh, Jerusalem. And everywhere he goes, basically he has some sort of, I don't know what to call them, an emissary come from that place who basically just is like there to confirm, right, that the, the money's not being abused. Okay, so we can confirm that the church in Corinth gave this amount of money and be sure that's the amount that's given, given over at the end. Plus, he specifically brings Gentile believers from each place so that when he gets back to Jerusalem, who are the ones who actually deliver the money to the believing apostles and, and other Jews in Jerusalem, but Gentiles coming from kind of all around the Mediterranean, bringing this money back to them. So that's the background. So Paul's holding uh, out for the Corinthians an even greater motivation for generosity than simply meeting the needs of the poor in Jerusalem. Notice what he says in verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. He could have stopped there. Like, listen, you'll be able to meet their needs, right? But he goes one step further, which that generosity will produce thanksgiving to God. Do you guys see that? So Paul's more concerned about the thanksgiving rendered to God, the praise, the worship given to God because of this act of kindness than simply the act of kindness or the, the needs that will be met thereby. And then notice also that the thanksgiving here is given not to the Corinthians, but to God. Isn't that interesting? Thanksgiving will be given to God, not even to the Corinthians. For this to be the case, those giving the thanks must understand that God stands behind it all and is the one ultimately responsible. Notice also that Paul links the gift not, or sorry, links the thanksgiving not with the gift, but with the generosity. In verse 11, when he says which, he's referring back to the, the generosity. The generosity through us will produce thanksgiving to God. It seems that Paul expects that believers will find greater reason to rejoice and thank God for the fruit of his grace in the transformed lives of believers than they will in the meeting of material needs. So that by, by Jewish believers in Jerusalem seeing what God's grace is doing under the new covenant all around the Mediterranean among pagan Gentiles such that they're saving up and able to send money back to Jewish brothers and sisters in Jerusalem to meet their needs, the transformed heart is what will really be causing them to give thanks, of which the generosity is merely a fruit and evidence. And then in verse 12, Paul is clear that this ministry, the giving of, the collecting, the delivery of the provision, is not only filling up the lack of the saints in Jerusalem, but this ministry is also abounding in the sense of bearing fruit through the thanksgiving that many people will give to God as a result. So again, not only in verse 11, but again in verse 12, Paul returns to the theme of thanksgiving that will be given to God as a significant goal. So these two texts from 2 Corinthians sort of give us a tangible sense of the importance of thanksgiving in Paul's theology. But they also reveal some significant assumptions related to thanksgiving. So having kind of gone through this entrance, having seen some of this in a concrete way, looking at these two specific texts, let's now zoom out and consider how Paul thought about thanksgiving a bit more generally. So let's be a bit more topical at this point. How Paul thought about thanksgiving. Let me give us three points about how Paul thought about thanksgiving. And I struggled to figure out how exactly to organize this, um, but hopefully this will be helpful for you. First, for Paul, thanksgiving is essentially praise or worship. And there's a whole bunch of ways that I could kind of demonstrate this for you. Um, all the way from even like the, the ways that words are used in the Old Testament, the prominence of praise words um, that then we don't often find in Paul. We often find thanksgiving words, language, and similar types of contexts. 
there's a whole bunch of even somewhat technical arguments related to the language, the Greek language, and how words were used that we could look to. Um, but I think we've already seen this somewhat clearly in these first two texts from 2 Corinthians, that Paul views thanksgiving largely in the category of praise to God. We also notice that in some of Paul's letters, in place of where he normally has a thanksgiving, he has actually a blessing. You know, blessed be God who, and then talks about what he's done for them. And it's like the exact same place, and everything else is the same as these thanksgiving comments, but instead it talks about blessing. And as you know, like a, you know, saying blessed be God for this or that is really just a way of praising him for that. So that'd be another one. Another way we see this is, and this will be the last one I draw out here, um, Paul sometimes will even thank God for things that he's not a beneficiary of at all. You know, often a way that we distinguish praise from thanksgiving. Think of that, have you guys ever sat under a teacher who's kind of explained like, okay, here's a praise psalm and here's a thanksgiving psalm. It's sometimes a helpful distinction, but sometimes it kind of falls apart. Um, and particularly with Paul, it falls apart because he'll sometimes give thanks for things that he's not even a beneficiary of. He'll thank God for what God's done in someone else's life. And so, again, it seems like he's praising God for what he's doing, right? It's basically equivalent there. So what's the significance of, for Paul, Thanksgiving being essentially praise or worship? Just that Thanksgiving is not a small matter. A good if you can, not a problem if you don't kind of thing. Rather, it is central to what we were created for and what we've been redeemed for. Therefore, if you want to waste your life, one of the best ways is to fail to express thanks to God. Here's a second one. For Paul, thanksgiving entailed a theological assertion. And I'll, I'll unpack this for us. For Paul, thanksgiving entailed a theological assertion. Now, this is related in some ways to the last point about thanksgiving being essentially praise or worship. How is it a theological assertion? How does thanksgiving involve a theological assertion? Well, in giving thanks, we are acknowledging that ultimately God is Lord of all in the sense of both the creator and the providential sustainer, right? He's the source of every good thing. Thus, we can say that there's an, there is implicit in the giving of thanks to God a theological assertion, despite the surface appearance, meaning despite the means he uses. So if Paul gives me something that's, that's a blessing to me, that's meeting a need, then he's the means God has used. But if I don't only thank Paul, but I thank God, the theological assertion is that, that, that behind all of that is a God who worked through Paul to do that sovereignly, right? There's a theological insertion entailed in thanking God rather than just the means of that blessing. Thus, to not give thanks also has an implicit theological assertion, even if it's articulated silently. So, for example, God's not ultimately the source of whatever it is. Or that he was not wise and good in dispensing whatever it is. Therefore, he doesn't deserve to be thanked. So what theological assertions are entailed in thanksgiving? And we could think through a number of these. I just thought of three theological assertions that are entailed in thanksgiving. First, God is creator. God is the creator. Let's just think through this, right? Why are there cows rather than none? Because God created them, right? Why are cows able to be domesticated rather than none? Have you ever thought about that? Some animals can't be domesticated. This was the surprise of the Dutch when they arrived in South Africa and saw these painted horses, striped horses called zebras, and then found out they couldn't be domesticated. And they thought it was a wonderful thing. There's horses here too. Oh no, they can't be domesticated. So that's why you don't ever see someone riding a zebra. <laughs> um, but so not all animals can be domesticated, believe it or not, despite man's best efforts. Um, but why can cows be domesticated? Because God made them that way, right? How about, why do cows have edible and delicious meat? <laughs> because God made them that way, right? And even more specifically, why do cows have a thick strip of meat called a tenderloin that we can enjoy? <laughs> because God made them that way, right? So God is creator. So when it comes down to something like that, like enjoying a beef tenderloin like I could last night, it, thanks is rendered to God appropriately, right? Because he created all of that the way it is so that it's possible even for that to be the case. He's creator. For me to thank God for enjoying a beef tenderloin, 
requires some kind of theological assertion. How do I get from my enjoyment of this hunk of meat to thanking God? Well, because he's creator. Does that make sense? You see the connections there? Here's another. God is the providential sustainer. God is not only the creator back at one point in time, he is the providential sustainer. I should say at the beginning of time. God as creator stands behind why the created order is the way it is, but what about why one event happens rather than another, kind of in time, right, since creation? This is explained by the truth that God is the providential sustainer, and we could say he sovereignly superintends over all that happens. He's not like like the modern-day deist might imagine, uh, you know, setting things in motion, stepping back, and having, having nothing to do with it. He's involved. Why did you get a promotion rather than losing your job? Because God determined it would be so. But what about the flip side? Why did you lose your job rather than getting a promotion? Because God determined it would be so. Romans 11, 33 to 36 is so helpful here. Paul coming at the end of really what was for himself a bit of a conundrum in 9 through 11. Why is the God who has primarily associated himself with Israel for so many millennia, for millennia, now at this stage, Seemingly like turning from the Jews to the Gentiles, and so few Jews are actually turning to, to their Messiah. But most of those who are following this Messiah and benefiting from him are Gentiles, who previously didn't know him at all. Paul comes to the end of this, and he writes, this is Romans eleven thirty three to 36, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. So notice particularly that last verse. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So Paul directly connects the worship of God. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Back to his creation and providence, right? From him and to him and through him are all things. So if we don't believe God stands behind all that happens, why would we thank him for any of it? And to thank him for something is to implicitly assert that he's behind it. And then this leads to another theological assertion. This will be the third and final one we come to. Implicit in thanksgiving. And that that is that God is good and wise in all he does. God is good and wise in all he does. It should be pretty obvious that if God is sovereignly behind every good thing that comes our way, we should thank him for that. But what about when what comes our way is hard? Not what we would have chosen for ourselves. Well, because God is wise and good in all he does, and he sovereignly stands behind all that happens, we can trust him with whatever comes to pass. But I said we can trust him with whatever comes to pass, right? That's even one step removed from our topic, which is thanksgiving. But not only can we trust him with whatever comes to pass, we can thank him for it. As Paul writes in uh, Ephesians 5.20, I don't actually have the text here, so let's look at Ephesians In Ephesians 5, just a few verses before, Paul says, not to be drunk with wine, but to be filled with the Spirit. And then he begins listing out some of the um, results of being filled by the Spirit. He lists five of them out, and the fourth result of being filled by the Spirit is, as you see in verse 20, that we will be always giving thanks for all things. Right? So Paul, like ups the ante when it comes to thanksgiving. We've been looking at other texts. This is a place where he says not just give thanksgiving in all circumstances, like in all circumstances, but for all things. So that means, going back to the example I had used, you can lose your job. And Paul doesn't say just thank God in that circumstance, but even thank God for that. How is that reasonable? How would that be a reasonable thing to thank God for? Because if he stands behind that, and if he is always wise and good in all that he does, then even though it must be by faith, we can affirm that that was a good thing. That was the best thing for me. That's what I needed. And I can trust the Lord in that. Does that make sense? And therefore, we can thank him for it. We can thank him when we really believe 
He is sovereign and wise and good. It requires faith. But when we believe that, we can thank him. Even though we still have to go back to where Paul was in Romans 11, right? I don't understand his ways. His ways are unsearchable. But I can still thank him and trust him. So the second observation about thanksgiving is that it implicitly entails theological assertions. And then the third one here is that for Paul, thanksgiving was significantly different from what we in the modern West think of. So hopefully this will be helpful. Here I'm kind of really venturing out to think about the intersection of how we tend to think about Thanksgiving and how Paul does, because by not just explaining how Paul thinks about it, but how we're tempted to, how our culture conditions us to, helps us to be alert to ways that that kind of thinking might permeate our own thinking. So as we, as we work through this over the next 10 minutes or so, stick with me um, and try to just be engaged in thinking about how you think about these things and, and if this is an accurate or fair assessment or not. <clears throat> so it seems to me that we tend to think about Thanksgiving in one of two categories. One, a matter of etiquette. So a kind deed is done and it can be repaid with a simple thanks, right? Sometimes people talk about, there's a whole lot, like this is like a whole domain within philosophy of like, is there ever such thing as like a freely given gift or does every gift come with strings attached? And it's just funny because like the common person always thinks like, well, of course this always comes with, without strings attached. But yet the philosophers are always convinced that no, there are always strings attached. Like implicit or not, we just don't realize it. We delude ourselves into thinking that you give it freely. It's even funny, watch at Christmas time, right? Someone brings you a gift and next thing you know, your wife's like, oh, we better go and get something for them. <laughs> but... Um, usually when it comes to Thanksgiving, that's enough, right? But think about this. If you don't give thanks, that threatens to destroy the relationship or at least hurt the relationship, doesn't it? If someone gives something to you and you never give them thanks, then it could, it could harm the relationship. But in this context, the debt that's given there can be repaid socially simply by rendering thanks, by saying thanks. So that's a matter of etiquette, right? Is that fair? That's a category of how we think about Thanksgiving, a matter of etiquette. Another one an emotional sense, like a sense of well-being, right? Gratitude is a part of a sense of well-being. In a fully therapeutic manifestation of this, it's an important element in the pursuit of being fulfilled or of mental well-being. It's an important element, uh, the culture would even say, of self-care. Interestingly, in this model, the solution becomes a simple technique. Uh, gratitude practices sometimes is talked about. I'm drawing that out. I think that's interesting because um, many people who have assessed our culture have noticed both the, the rise of kind of therapeutic concerns and it depends upon technique. We live in a technological society where everything can be solved by kind of the right, the right method, the right solution, the right order of processes will, will solve any problem. And so we often naturally are just kind of conditioned to think in terms of techniques. Um, and so it's just interesting that we, we tend to go to that even here. So starting with the first category of Thanksgiving for us, and thinking about how that interacts with Paul's thinking. It isn't that Paul teaches that giving thanks to others as a matter of etiquette or as a social custom is a problem, but he certainly sees it as a whole lot more than that. You guys hear me? I'm not saying that the matter of etiquette is a problem. In fact, Paul's the one who became all things to all people that he might all, by all means save some, right? So if Paul lived in our culture, he would certainly observe the etiquette and render thanks. <laughs> or even if if that requires giving a gift in return, he'd probably do that too, to avoid the offense and leave open the channel for the gospel. Um, but it goes far beyond that, right? He wouldn't allow it to simply be that. It must, he must say, that person gave me something good, yes, observe the matter of etiquette and thank them for it. But more importantly than that, thank God for what's happened there. So that's within the, that first category. For Paul, it's a means of worshiping God for what he's done through others. That's a significant difference in simply a matter of etiquette, isn't it? It's a means of encouraging others by reminding them that God was working through the good they did. But where we see a much sharper contrast is that second category of thanksgiving for us, namely an emotional sense. This is the one I want to spend a little bit more time on because I think that this is really where we see the biggest differences. In the modern West, we're, we're just simply a, a highly therapeutic society. By that, I mean we're just extraordinarily preoccupied with mental well-being, with happiness, with a sense of fulfillment and satisfaction. 
And that's not just simply like an observation that some Christians make. That's an observation that many people make. Um, I can think of Philip Reif's book, The Rise, of, Rise and Triumph of the Therapeutic, um, or even a, a recent book. I can't remember the name of the author. I think her last name was Summers. But it's um, One Nation Under Therapy, just recognizing. And you guys can even see it's just around, right? Comparing it to 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, the rise of the um, just how many people are pursuing kind of uh, some kind of therapeutic psychology, that realm, right? So I think it's just a fair assessment to say that incredibly therapeutic is our age. And that's helpful to observe, regardless of how you assess that, just to know that that's shaping how we approach things, how we think about things. But this therapeutic orientation has affected how we tend to think about Thanksgiving. So let's think about and try to identify how we might be programmed to think uh, when we think about Thanksgiving. And ways we're programmed to think about Thanksgiving that aren't included when Paul's thinking about Thanksgiving or when any biblical author is thinking about Thanksgiving. Within a therapeutic approach, gratitude is about how we can improve our mental well-being, how we can live a more happy, satisfied life. To say it frankly, within a therapeutic culture, even something as seemingly outward-oriented and selfless as gratitude really gets turned into a tool of self-fulfillment. Here's Paul's thinking in contrast. For Paul, thanksgiving has nothing to do with himself, but everything to do with God, his glory, his praise, his exaltation. Also for Paul, gratitude is not an emotional sense. In fact, I think even the translation thanksgiving is often good because thanksgiving conveys something more than just an inward sense, right, of gratitude. It actually conveys an action of conveyance. You're conveying thanks. You're giving thanks, right? And so that's, that's what Paul has in mind. Gratitude is not simply an emotional sense. It's a verbal expression of gratitude to someone else. Therefore, for Paul, and I would say for all the biblical authors, gratitude does not depend on how you feel or how I feel. Part of living in a therapeutic culture is that we are very concerned about and we think a lot about how we feel. So, you know, whether or not I'm thankful depends upon how I feel. But for Paul, it comes down to a matter of belief. I believe that God has sovereignly worked through whatever this event was and deserves thanks. And so I'm going to render thanks to him and praise and worship of him, right? How, how I, his, his little creature, feels about that is, a, is not immediately relevant. Now, granted, as we live in, in worship of God, then we should find joy in that. That should bring us delight. But that's just not the preoccupation of Paul's thought. Paul was an exceedingly joyful man, even in the midst of great circumstances, right? In some ways, Paul was like the paragon of, of the, the, the goal of all, all self-care, right? Because he was like, whatever circumstance, like he was just unflappable. He was always joyful. And yet, what was the foundation? Like forgetting himself. But... The, the forgetting of ourself can never just become a technique to make ourselves happy because that's just like a losing battle. It's a lie we're telling ourselves. I'm going to forget myself because I'm ultimately concerned for myself. We have to really forget ourselves genuinely. It was actually funny. So I was just curious. I, I Googled this and indeed, like, gratitude is a significant ingredient in self-care. Um, and so, but as it would be explained, it would often sound something like this. Um, you know, studies show that narcissism makes us unhappy. And so finding a way to, to uh, express gratitude to other people and have concern for other people is a good thing. So we need to learn to be less narcissistic because when we do that, we'll be more fulfilled. <laughs> oh, I don't know how, how like, this is going to work. <laughs> it's like we're closing the loop here, you know? <laughs> so, that, so Paul's thinking in contrast, you should be able to see, is, is quite a bit different. Now, I want to share a bit more about how to assess this, because I think there is a sense, but I'm running out of time. I think there's a sense in which we can thank God for the common grace of what even in the world, for those who aren't believed, is like, we, I'm just going to call it a pseudo-virtue, um, because it's not really directed to God. It's not really rooted in, in his character or anything like that. And yet, it's still a blessing to people, right? Even if it's somewhat of like a, a skeleton of full-blown Christian gratitude, people in seek, seeking to practice gratitude, to seeking to practice thanksgiving, still find some measure of benefit, right? They, they look beyond themselves and their own problems. Um, so there's a means, like a sense in which God, God gives common grace to all of his creatures, even when they aren't actually redeemed or seeking his glory or seeking the good of others selflessly. 
And yet at the end of the day, wow, what a beautiful thing that we as believers can, can know gratitude, thanksgiving in its fullest form. Because we actually can forget ourselves by God's redemptive grace, by his regenerating power, and actually love other people, seek to not look for our own good, but seek to rejoice in all that God is doing in his creation and through redemption and rejoice in that and praise him for that. Just as we kind of wrap this up here, I'm going to skip over a lot of what I had related to this, but kind of just a closing thought. As our zeal in life turns from being self-oriented to becoming God-oriented, and I think in many ways we could say that's sanctification, turning from becoming self-oriented to becoming God-oriented, our highest aims become aligned with his, his mission. Rather than simply fulfilling ourselves or satisfying ourselves, our greatest desire becomes, how can I, as his servant, help do, do my role, what he's commissioned me to do in his mission, the mission he's left for us. <clears throat> and, therefore, we can praise, we can thank him, even when we personally receive nothing, but we see his mission advance. Right? Because we're no longer focused on what we can get out of it, but we're focused on his mission advancing, seeing that Christ is enthroned as king, and he's beginning to implement his reign over his creation, restoring that reign through those who have voluntarily submitted to his reign. So those are some of the ways uh, in which we're likely conditioned to think about thanksgiving or gratitude that differ from what Paul thought or even more generally the biblical perspective and the perspective we ought to have. So in summary, the three points regarding how Paul thinks about thanksgiving. Number one, for Paul, thanksgiving is essentially praise or worship. Number two, for Paul, thanksgiving entails a theological assertion. Number three, for Paul, thanksgiving was significantly different from what we in the modern West think of thanksgiving. So next week, we're going to come back and look at one of those other sources of understanding how Paul thinks about thanksgiving, namely the Old Testament. Um, there's a lot in the Old Testament about thanksgiving, actually. Think about even just Israel as they wandered in the wilderness and how seriously God took their grumbling, right? Um, there's a lot there. So we'll come back to that, and then even beyond that, then move into thinking just really practically, how do we put this into practice so that we can grow, not simply in practices of thanksgiving, um, but genuinely in, in just recognizing, thinking about God being behind all that happens and regularly giving thanks to him for that. Any thoughts, comments before we conclude, before I pray for us? Jed, you look like you've got something in your mind. You always have something in your mind, though. I do, but we can talk after. Okay. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Lord, we do love you, and uh, it would be appropriate to thank you for your word, which guides us, because uh, we, we wouldn't naturally arrive at truth and right ways of thinking and right ways of living if you had not initiated revealing truth to us. So we thank you for this. And I pray, Lord, that as we continue down this path, this little excursus of understanding thanksgiving from a biblical perspective, uh, that you would continue to renew our minds, that we would think more biblically about it, and that we would grow in giving thanks to you and essentially worshiping you and praising you for who you are and all that you do. Um, I pray, Lord, not only for us generally, but just think about this week. I pray, Lord, for each of us that we would begin growing in that and thinking through these three propositions implied um, in thanksgiving and uh, just meditating on this more, that you would make us more, more thankful people as we are renewed in our thinking. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.